Hi, everybody. Everybody recovering from the uh, Fall Fest? Yeah, on Facebook, uh, there was a picture of my son Dalton, or not Dalton. <laughs> Guys, there's a secret that I've been holding back for some time now. <laughs> there's a reason why Dalton likes flannel so much, right? That would be... Anyhow, we're Dalton's lifting Samuel, my son, in the air, and it's a great picture, and we had a great time together. So, anyhow, it was great to see a lot of you there at the Fall Fest. You know, these are always <clears throat> difficult things to teach uh, in front of people, mainly because as you're preparing for a teaching, uh, you, you know, you preach to yourself first. Any any person that that teaches and doesn't bring their own, their own selves under God's word and, and reflects and meditates on it, then they've done kind of a shabby job in preparation. And so as we're getting prepped to, to give this message, it was just like, man, there's a lot here that is just convicting me. And so anyhow, I, just, I, I hope that you see that this is something that I'm wrestling with, that I'm uh, making strides in growth, right, when we talk about spiritual realities, and so just, just keep that in mind as we, we enter into God's Word. Um, my name is Steve Green. For some of you that might be visiting, thanks, first, uh, thanks for coming. Uh, we really value and we really appreciate visitors, and we love having visitors come in this church. And so thanks for, for being here. Uh, do seriously uh, fill out the welcome card. Uh, we want to know how we can serve visitors and guests better. So by all means, do that. Um, I'm on staff here with Lion Lamb Church. I serve with the college ministry. There's my college group right there. Hey, guys. Some in the middle section as well. And then I'm also, so I'm here part-time, but I'm also part-time with Topeka Young Life. I serve at Washburn University as the director for Young Life College. So I get to hang out with millennials a lot of, uh, most of my time, right? And I love my job. I'm not an elder. I'm not a deacon. Uh, this is a part of a sermon series um, that's been going on through the beginning of August. I'm uh, they've asked me to, to teach. I enjoy doing it. And so uh, here I am this morning. We're talking about spiritual realities. And uh, the truth of the matter is I actually lost my first page somewhere in the process of this morning, Sunday school teaching. And so we're going to be winging it for at least at least five minutes. That first five minutes, you just don't know what's going to happen. So with that said, uh, why don't you turn to your Bibles, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to page 977 in your pew Bibles if you'd like to open that up. And while you're doing there, let me just paint a picture for, uh, for you all about the letter of Ephesians, okay? So Paul is writing this letter to a church in Ephesus. And unlike a lot of other of Paul's letters, like for instance, 1 Corinthians or Romans or Galatians, in which there's an occasion for the reason why he's writing the letter, the, the letter to Ephesians kind of lacks that pastoral purpose, other than, other than he wants to give the readers of, uh, of Ephesians and the, the church in Ephesus sort of this broad understanding of what Christ's work has done. And it, it's kind of this beautiful picture of the cosmos, like Christ uh, has, has let his purposes be known through the gospel and that he is winning people, he's bringing people to himself. And so there's this cosmic redemption that's taking place. And in that, uh, everything changes. Larry talked about how the resurrection uh, happened historically, physically. It actually happened. Jesus was raised from the dead. And if that actually happened, then, then that changes everything about life, right? Our relationships, what, what God has to say about relationships, husband and wife, parent-child, uh, in their context, slave, owner, 
Right? The gospel is going to change all these different, um, different realities, and so there's this big emphasis in that. And so, in chapter 6, we see in verse 10, and that's where we're going to be, there's this idea of, of the armor of God, that we're in a, a true and real battle with forces that we may not be aware of. So, let, let me read uh, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for um, just a glorious morning. Lord, it does say that the heavens declare your works, and Lord, just seeing a beautiful autumn morning is just a reminder of how you are sovereign and that you are ruling over in your providence over all things, that you um, set the seasons in order. And Father, as we think about this topic today of spiritual realities, Father, I just pray that for a moment um, we'd become increasingly aware of a world much bigger and greater and more of importance than the world that we just see with our own physical eyes. Help us to have hearts that want to hear you and also be about your work. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, let me ask you a question. If, picture the devil for a moment. Okay? It's kind of a dark question, right? Picture the devil. What does he look like? You know, some of you, when you hear the devil, you may immediately think of kind of like uh, some of the images that you see of, of Satan where he has the goat head and the horns and he has the human body, and that's pretty terrifying, right? And then there's other pictures of uh, Milton's uh, Paradise Lost, you know, where you see Satan as this fallen angel and has this kind of um, angelic appearance to him. But then there's others that kind of, when you hear, you hear the devil, think of the devil, you think of a guy with a red you know, pitchfork and little horns growing out of his head and a little goatee and just wearing this red suit and he's kind of sly, right? And so it's interesting to think about that question. When you get to a book like C.S. Lewis Screwtape Letters, there's a story of, of Screwtape who's advising his nephew, Wormwood, on how to trick his patient into, into following the devil and not following Jesus. And part of that ploy he talks about in one of the first chapters is to pretend the best, the best defense is to pretend that the devil doesn't exist, right? He, what he says is, 
He says, if he does, if for a moment he is thinking about there could be a devil, if there could be demonic forces to make, it, make in his mind a remembrance that it's, it's comical to think of a devil, so much so that he would be like, how silly of me to even believe in such a thought and therefore dismiss the idea that the devil and, the, and his forces are even real. And I love that picture because Lewis's insight is king for us today. He understands, Lewis did, that there was a dullness that was setting in to that time period in which people, because of history, because of where philosophy was at, at with modernism, that the people were becoming increasingly dull to spiritual forces that were work. That spiritual realities were becoming less and less important and people were becoming more and more dull and ignorant to this fact that, that, that there's this wonderful, insane reality beyond us called, called the spiritual world that Paul uses in Ephesians 6. I think we often struggle to, divide, to identify and to own spiritualities, um, which in the end are ultimate realities. If we could just see for a moment, and there's books about this, if we could just see what's going on when we pray, if we could just see, we could see when we're serving people what that looks like in the spiritual realm, for just a moment, I'm, I'm a, I have to assume that our hearts would be so much eager, more eager to grow in righteousness and in godliness, and yet we don't see that. It's a struggle that we have. Life can feel, right, it can feel very, very ordinary. Right? We go, we get up tomorrow around 5 a.m., 6 a.m., 7 a.m., drink coffee and start your day like just any other day. And yet, Paul says that there is a struggle in the spiritual realm. And he gives some, some sort of advice, some, some application for this. You know, Paul was writing this letter to a church in Ephesus that knew knew about the spiritual realm. It was a very, uh, Ephesus at that time had a lot of uh, interesting religious sects. It had a a lot of um, mystical religions that were present in Ephesus. So their problem wasn't to believe that there was a spiritual realm. Their their issue might have been, and you see this in this passage, is that they didn't know, and it's the same struggle we have today, that we don't know our place in light of the spiritual realities. If there is a spiritual world in which God and his, his... angelic hosts are working against Satan and his forces, what role, what place do we have today as Christians? You ever think about that? That's a struggle. And so here's, what I, here's where I want to kind of land on as, as sort of a main thought, that since Jesus rules over all, or since spiritual realities exist, we must pursue eternal ambitions, This is going to be kind of outlined in this passage. You see it with Paul's imperatives. He commands to do three things. He he says this. First, that we are to be aware and be strong. In verses 10 through 12, that's the first point. The second point is to put on the armor of God. And third, keep alert through prayer. Okay? Those are, the pre- those are the passages or the, the points that I'm going to be working with, so follow along if you would. The first, but we must be aware or be strong. Paul says this in verses 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For, when, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. 
Now this passage, just to give you a little bit of background about the letter of Ephesians, is written at the very tail end. And up to this point in chapters 1 through 3, Paul is, is, is kind of working us through what Christ has done. In, in chapters 1 through 3, he talks about God's eternal purposes for us as believers. That there was a day before he even created the world in which he would be sending his son Jesus right, to die for us so that those people, all people, might be heirs and recipients of God's grace towards us. Right? Through Christ's work, we are now adopted into God's family. And because of that, we receive all these wonderful blessings as part of this new community of believers. At one point, it had been pretty much exclusively the Jewish peoples, and now it's being extended to all peoples. And because of this, 4 through 6, God, or Paul is saying, this is what your life should look like in light of this reality. He's kind of ordering. He's saying this is a proper way for ordering our relationships. You're to love each other. You're to put off the old way, put on this new way of living. And because of that, your relationships are going to look differently. We're going to serve each other. You're going to want to serve each other. You're going to want to submit to one another and lead. Like husbands leading, wives submitting. That, that beautiful language there, right? It's going to reorder all of our priorities. So there's this great picture of what relationships should look like as part of God's new community. But... Paul realizes that there's a spiritual world out there that is seeking to sort of disorder everything. And we see that, right, in Genesis 3. When the serpent shows up in the scene, everything is good. Man is finally with woman. Everything is content. Everything is at peace. And suddenly serpent, the serpent shows up and immediately starts to disrupt this beautiful relationship that God has ordered. And Paul's saying the same thing for us today, that there is this real battle that's taking place and that we need to be strong in the Lord. Right? This is not sort of bootstrap sort of Christianity. I just need to find enough strength in my own self to face the attacks of the enemy. No, this is a strength that is rooted in a, a knowing presence of God in our lives. You know, it's interesting, and in, in, in also in verse 11, Paul says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. How cunning, right, the devil can be, is what Paul is saying. And it goes back to what uh, Screwtape is telling Wormwood. Hey, if you can just pretend, if you can just keep that sort of illusion that we don't exist, and if, you, if you, he does begin to think that we do exist, that you can just treat him as or to treat us as like a comic book, that that's the best approach. We see that today, and we, we have a tendency within especially Western church, American church, to minimize the role of the spiritual realities in our lives. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says here. He says, I am certain that one of the main causes of the ill state of the church today is the fact that the devil is being forgotten. All is attributed to us. We have become so psychological in our attitude and thinking we are ignorant of this objective fact that the being, the existence of the devil. It's so true, isn't it? And I'll get to that point in, in the application, but, but Paul's saying, be strong because there is a battle taking place. Be strong in the Lord. Find that strength, a strength that is rooted in uh, God the Father. Ephesians 3.16 says this, Paul prays for the saints that you may be strengthened with power through his Spirit. Right? This is a passive strength that is given to us 
by God himself. And that is in line and and sort of in keeping with the theme of God being the victorious one in Scripture. This reminds me, just reading that, that command to be strong, reminds me so much of, do you remember Joshua in the Old Testament? God says, be strong, be courageous, for I'm about to have you enter into the land, and you're going to take it and seize it. And so Joshua goes, and he's getting into the land, and then in Joshua chapter 5, he encounters an interesting individual. Do you remember this story? So he's getting ready to mount an attack on Jericho. He's going to seize the land. And it says this in verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, I love this line, Are you for us or for our adversaries? No. Okay. Could you imagine that? You see a guy with a sword in his hand. So, so are you for me or for you against, or for you, are you with my enemies? Neither. Oh. Okay. Could you imagine how, how terrifying that would be? And also, in some ways, so amazing. He says, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth in worship and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. The Lord gives him instruction. He takes Jericho in a dramatic fashion, right? And that, part of that story is not only Joshua's call to be strong, but also a realizing that his ability to be strong was in nothing that was in Joshua, right? There was nothing in Joshua that was going to allow him to take his enemies. It was only because God had promised Joshua victory and said by his strength that he will go, into the, go before them and win his battles that Joshua is going to be coming out victorious. And I love that, that Joshua had to believe and had to trust in God's strength to give him victory over his enemies. And that was physical enemies. And what Paul's saying now today in our reality of the new covenant, we are at war with a spiritual enemy. And in the same way that Joshua is called to be strong, we today are called to be strong. This isn't Christian dualism. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, we don't hold that some way, there's two errors I think that we are tempted to sort of indulge in. The first is in, in, this, in this area of Christian dualism. Somehow in our minds we think that Satan and his forces are on an equal footing with God and his, and his forces. And that is not what Christian Christianity teaches. Remember Job? What does Satan have to do? Satan has to go before the throne of God himself just to ask if he can tempt Job. There's not, it's not a comparison. It's not a game of comparison. And so, so oftentimes, maybe, we are tempted to think that when, when we feel like life's pressures are on us and that uh, we get in a, in a conflict with somebody and you, you, you lose it, right? You lose it. And you say, man, what was that about? Right? And you start to think, oh, you know, Satan, he's, he's and his forces, they're so powerful. And we, in that moment, we forget that that's true. He is powerful. Paul says that. But at the same time, God is infinitely greater. 
And we are united in him and with him. And because of that, we can draw upon this strength that is unlike any other resource that we have available to us. And, and, and also, that is, that is a means of grace. Like, not only is God saying, be strong, but he's also saying, it's in my strength in which you are able to be strong. But then there's the opposite end of this, this kind of thinking of God and Satan on the equal footing. And, and the other way is which Lewis and Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about, which is sort of de-emphasizing the role of the spiritual in our lives. We, we do tend to think of issues in psychological terms, right? I work, again, with college students, and I love college students, but they're incredibly anxious people. They just are. They have tests, they have papers, they have internships, they have jobs, they have grad school that they're applying for. It's anxiety, anxiety, anxiety. And so oftentimes, in, in that situation, they'll, they'll go and talk to a counselor, or they'll see somebody, and they'll say, well, you should probably take an anti-anxiety medication. And I'm not here to, revel, or to sort of talk about how wrong it is to take uh, pharmaceutical drugs to help with genuinely organic mental illnesses. That's not what I'm saying. Please do not hear that. What I am saying is that we tend to personalize and localize spiritual problems to the physical so much that we forget that there's actually a spiritual reality to why we are struggling with anxiety, right? So you start to talk to them, and it's like, well, I'm really sort of, uh, I'm not content with where God has me. That's why I'm so anxious. Or, man, there is a lot of pressure on me to perform, and I don't know if I can handle it. And we feel that, right, in your own work, right? incredibly, incredibly anxious. I'm not sure what this person will think of me if I don't show up to this party, right? And so this anxiety, is we, we, we sort of de-emphasize the spiritual to the point in which we forget that there are actual spiritual remedies to our heart's condition. And so it's just an important to remember that we not only have, there is a spiritual reality, but God, in his grace, has given us a means to combat these, um, these tricks, these attacks that we face. Second, uh, kind of moving on to the second point, not only are we to be strong, but we're also to put on the armor of God. Read with me verses 13 through 17. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. As John Stott points out, a wobbly Christian is easily prone to the attacks of the devil. Right? Just like we are called to put on the new self in Ephesians 4, verse 24, Paul talks about putting on the armor of God. And in your handout, a couple things that I tried to show here in this handout. First, that for Paul, this is, this is rich with context. He, in Isaiah, Isaiah talks about... Uh, Yahweh as warrior, as the warrior. And so, he says, wear the belt of truth. In Isaiah eleven fifteen, it's belt of righteousness. You see a correlating breastplate of righteousness. In Isaiah 15, 59, 17, A, he talks about the Lord wearing the breastplate of righteousness. 
Helmet of salvation is the same in Isaiah 59, 17. And the point, part of the point is, again, God supplies. It's by God's grace that he supplies the means for which we are to engage Satan and his forces. Right? And I, and I, I love that, that not only is this a means for engaging uh, the spiritual realm, but it's also a means by which we can grow closer to God. Do you think by practicing faithfulness that we're going to grow closer to God the Father? Yeah. Do you think if we put on the belt of truth and we speak truthfully to one another about things, about ourselves or about our situations, do you think that that's going to help us grow in Christ-likeness? Yeah. Do you think instead of, in Ephesians 4, when it talks about not being angry, unbiblical anger, and we put on the gospel, right, equipped with the gospel of peace, that that's going to make us more like our Heavenly Father? Yeah. So not only is this, it's kind of like a double-edged sword. Not only does it fight off the attacks, because the, Paul is clear, the enemy is always attacking us. Not only does it fight off those attacks, but it's also a means of grace for which by doing so we get to grow, grow closer to the Father. You know, sometimes uh, we forget there is a duty here, right? Paul is saying, put it on constantly. And duty is just not a sexy term in our, in our society, right? Like obedience, it's like, ugh, whatever, okay. You know, like, that's my generation, sorry. Uh, baby boomers, that's not what you guys say. <laughs> Something different. But we forget, when God talks about his law, and he talks about his word, and he talks about these things, we forget that these are actually privileges. It is a privilege to pursue faithfulness. It is a privilege to speak the truth and love to somebody else. It is a privilege to read God's word and to apply it to our lives. Obedience is a privilege because in obedience we're actually returning, we're becoming more human in the process. You ever think about that? We're becoming more human in the privilege and partaking in obedience by doing something like putting on the armor of God. It's something that we have to work at. It's something that we have to do and we have to be aware of constantly. It's a reality that we have to take in an account every single day. I remember uh, the first time, oh man, I'm having like flashbacks just thinking about this, but when I was at Summer Greek at Covenant Theological Seminary, I'd wake up in the middle of the night, I would literally be dreaming of par- Greek paradigms on the day of a test. That's no joke. And I remember, like at first, I could not figure out certain Greek verb endings. And I would sit there and i look at flashcards, and it wasn't until I started writing it over and over and over and over and over again that it would start to stick. And I have notebooks, literally, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not exaggerating, from top of the page to the bottom of the page, front and back of Greek paradigms. Because that was in order to be able to prepare myself for the, for the test, I had to work at it. I had to keep on doing, right, writing over and over, practicing, working towards, um, kind of learning the Greek language just so I could get to the point of looking at a Greek text and being able to translate it. That whole summer, I was just immersed in the Greek language. It was learning about participles, about uh, verbal syntax, about uh, aspect, all these these incredible terms I was getting um, some acquaintance with. But, you know, I could pray, right? One of, one, of my, one of the things I could have done is I could have prayed and said, please, God, help me, help me remember my verbal endings with never putting any work to it, right? That'd be, that'd be ludicrous. It'd be 
Like you can, you can pray that. That's a good prayer to have, but it goes with good and proper preparation. And you take that, and you take that a step further and think about our spiritual lives. How often do we say, Lord, help me to be patient with this person without actually practicing patience with that person? How often do we pray, Lord, help me to not get so angry? When the chance to actually not be angry arises and we choose not to be angry? You know, that's the, that's the cultivation of virtue. If, you want to, if we want to learn to put on the armor of God to practice faith, when God gives us the opportunity to practice faith, we practice faith. When God uh, gives us a chance to speak peace instead of speaking anger to somebody, speak peace, Right? And so part of what, this life, what our life should look like is an ordering of a way of life in which we're always aware that there's a spiritual reality at place and also our part in it. So we're called to be aware of the spiritual realities. We're called to put on the armor of God. And then finally, we're also to, we're called to be alert through prayer. And, you know, honestly, if, I, if I'm just completely candid, I'd rather have Mike or an elder talk about this because this is an area that I see the need for prayer more and more, especially in light of what Paul says. Because listen, listen to what he says. Lost my page. Here we go. Verse 18, that we have put on the armor of God, we are to praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the power through his Spirit. Or, sorry. Here we go. The mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So we're called to pray so that we can be alert. And I think that this, these participles, these verbs are connecting with Paul's original call in the verse 10 to stand, right? To be, to be strong. Perhaps the thought here is that through prayer, one is able to put on the armor of God. As I was looking at this passage again, I was just struck that again, this is God's means for grace for us to experience. It's only by his strength that we're able to stand, right, firm. It's only by putting on his armor that we're able to defend ourselves, and it's only through prayer that he provides that we're able to be alert. Additionally, Paul uses that Greek word pas, all, four times in, this one, in this, this one verse or in this one section alone. Has a thought of this. Um, who should we pray for? All the saints. When should we pray? All the time, right? With much perseverance. How? With all prayer and supplication and perseverance. And then Paul, in in verses 19 and 20, asks for prayer for himself. John Stott again says this, What Paul wants them to realize that a life of dependence on God in prayer is essential if they are to engage successfully in their warfare with the power of darkness. It's kind of like the old idiom, idiom, you don't take a knife to a gunfight, right? And so too is somebody who is a Christian who does not consider prayer a crucial part of their life. And, and spiritual growth and development, so are we taking a knife to a gunfight when we seek to fight off the forces that are against us? John fifteen sixteen says this, and this is what Jesus tells his disciples, that you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. 
So what's the connection there with Ephesians 6? Well, first of all, there's this idea that we're to bear fruit, that the fruit that we bear, you know, fruit is good. Not only is it something that, you know, you get to produce, but it's also there for people to enjoy, right? So not only are we producing fruit that is blessing other people, but also if you take the military language of Paul in Ephesians, that prayer in some way connects us to the very mission of God himself. It's like a walkie-talkie and we're foot soldiers and we're, you know, we're calling into the general who's ordering right, where we should be. We pray for wisdom. We pray for opportunities to share the gospel. We pray that we might, um, we might have the strength right, to endure the trials of the day. Right? Part of prayer is to kind of get us in line with what God is doing in this world. We, constantly, we have a prayer calendar for this church. We ask people to pray for each other because not only does that unify our hearts to each other, but also we get to be active participants in the mission and work that God is doing in this world. There is no small part in God's economy. It reminds me of uh, Downton Abbey. I had to really pull, pull out the stops for that illustration, right? Downton Abbey. We've been watching it for a while, and um, there's, a, there's a part in the story that I love. So Matthew Crawley is, is finding out that he's like a long-lost heir, right, of Grantham's uh, lordship, I guess. And he gets there. He's like a third or fourth cousin of Lord Grantham, and he's a lawyer. And he has this kind of like, I don't want to inherit this kind of way of living right, where I have all these butlers that do all these wonderful things for me. And so he gets this butler, Mosley. And Mosley's kind of this lovable, laughable character, and you just, you just like him. And Mosley is only known the life of a butler. He comes from a line of butlers, right? And, and Matthew Crawley thinks it's kind of demeaning to Mosley to have to help him get dressed for the day. And so Matthew kind of avoids... Uh, Mosley trying to get him dressed and says, no, I'm good, I'll take care of it. And there's another situation where he's wanting to carry the luggage and Lord uh, Grantham sees that and he pulls Matthew aside and he says, listen, we all have a role to play, no matter how big or small. And I, I love that for a moment. You know, in God's economy, within the context of prayer, we all have a role to play. Sure, I, I get paid, part of my vocation is I get paid to meet with college students. And yeah, we have elders. God has appointed elders and deacons at this church. And they watch over us and make sure that we are growing together as a community. But every person has a role in God's economy, right? You young people that are ages, you know, 5 to 25, right? You have a role to play. Moms that, that are stay at home and just wondering, you know, what does God have me to do? You have a role to play, right? Retirees, we, you have a role to play in God's economy, right? I love my job. I love it. I love what I get to do. I love this church. I, I genuinely like that, you know, we agree on most things other than I don't understand why some of you root for K-State. That's okay. I'll pray for you, right? I'm a KU fan. Yeah, amen. There we go. Like we, we agree. We're, we're happy to get, like, I love this community that I'm a part of. But you know what? Jesus did not save me to make me happy and thankful only to be a part of this community. Right? That's a benefit of us being together and worshiping together, the, the unity that we experience. But Christ didn't die for us to be happy about the Christian subculture that we have inherited. Right? There's more to the Christian experience, the Christian mission, than just 
just uh, life together, even though that's an important part, that, that we do have responsibilities that we are called to live out in our ordinary lives. We all have a part to play in prayer helps us stay in line and stay focused to the mission, to the realms in which God has called us. It helps us pursue faithfulness into those designated areas. And so, as a guy who, who wants to pray more, who, who's the first one to say, man, I do not pray enough, right? Don't hear me saying, I've mastered it, therefore you do this. Pray, say this, pray for Steve because he really, he really needs to learn how to pray more. And the truth of the matter is, you should pray for our elders and deacons. It talks about praying for the elders in Hebrews 13, right? Before they keep watch over your souls. Like, we should be praying for each other because it allows us to knit ourselves closer to one another, kind of buy into what each other, what we're doing together, and then also um, to grow closer to uh, God the Father as well. So from Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, we see that our call is to be aware of the spiritual realities, that is awareness to be strong, or that, that we have a type of strength that is found and rooted in the character of God. Second, we are to put on and utilize the weapons and practices that would keep us spiritually alert, but also spiritually fit. And then finally, we're to stand firm through prayer. And then uh, as the story of Screwtape Letters kind of finishes, the last letter that he writes to Wormwood. I love, I love it because the guy, his patient, has become a Christian. And he's been trying so hard to get him to sort of uh, uh, discourage him from being a Christian, from being unaware of the spiritual realities that are at play. And the, the, the patient ends up dying in an air raid during World War II. And Screwtape is disgusted by this. And, I, and here's what he has to say. Here's why he's disgusted. You have let a soul flip, or slip through your fingers. How well I know what happened at that instant. They, heaven, snatched him from you. There, there was a sudden clearing of his eyes as he saw you for the first time and recognized the part you had in him and knew that you had it no longer. By hell, it is misery enough to see them in their mortal days taking off dirtied and uncomfortable clothes, splashing in hot water and giving little grunts of pleasure. As he saw you, he also, also saw them. He had no faintest conception till that very hour of how they would look, and even doubted their existence. But when he saw them, he knew that he had always known them and realized what part each had played, not who are you, but so it was you all the time. And not just them, but him. What is blinding and suffocating to you is cool light to him, all the delights of sense or heart or intellect with which you could have tempted him now seem to him in comparison, but as the half-nauseating attractions of a harlot would seem to a man who hears that his true beloved from, from whom he has loved all his life and whom he had believed to be dead is alive and even now at his door. Sometimes I am almost despair. All that sustains me in this, is this conviction that our realism our rejection of all silly nonsense and claptrap must win in the end. What is, what is, what's the point, right? First of all, he's, he's disgusted. He's disgusted by the fact that God would welcome a poor, miserable sinner like the patient, right? And at that moment of death that he'd be given a new robe and be welcomed into the host of heaven and to the very presence of God. But also, there it is again, that emphasis that the enemy wants to sort of 
keep below the surface, making it, making the spiritual realm unreal, unreasonable to believe. But, but it is real. Just as real as today, being Sunday, so is the fact that one day we'll die. And in that day, we will stand to give an account before the Lord and, and for believers, for Christians, we will have a chance to be with God once and forever. We'll be in his very presence. But for others, uh, others of us that may not believe in the gospel, I would just, I would just encourage you to do so. Right, we talked about this in, in Sunday school today, that we, we all have a longing to be connected into something greater and much bigger than ourselves. And some of us, we find it in other ways, but only through believing in the gospel that Jesus died for us, that we might actually have life and purpose. And so what I love about this is this, the world's crazy. Can we all agree the world's crazy? Right, we shouldn't have to wake up in a world in which we find out that 10 Christians, 11 Christians, 9 Christians, I don't remember, know the number now, right, were killed because they were Christians in Oregon. But here's what we can take hope in, 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 in Paul's understanding of God, that he is working all things to his purposes for his glory. All history is being orchestrated to glorify him. And that is the hope in which we proclaim. And that's the hope that we ask others to be invited into. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this day, again, and for your word. Lord, thank you for brothers and sisters that are here. Lord, we just ask that you would uh, help us to grow closer to you in this time of worship, that our time in the word, desire to worship, would now overflow into song. Prepare our hearts especially for the Lord's Supper. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.